This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week we're visiting the ancestral lands of the Apache, Comanche, Pueblo, Navajo, Ute, and Zuni peoples of New Mexico. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. And when you hear the everyone, Amelia here. Welcome back to the 50 Feminist States podcast. Today we are visiting New Mexico. We're going to hang out for three whole episodes. And this one's particularly special, so I'm excited to share it with you. Before we get to today's interview with Allegra Love, director of the Santa Fe Dreamers Project, I wanted to share a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes at 50 Feminist States. Since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, I've been watching how this global health crisis has created an economic crisis that's impacted so many of the individuals and organizations that we've interviewed for the podcast. The crisis, of course, has impacted the podcast too, but honestly, it's been a relatively easy shift. As I mentioned in the first episode, we pivoted all the interviews to remote and just basically paused the travel, which is an integral part of the project, but it can still continue without it. As a result of that, our expenses have greatly decreased and it's really really unclear when we'll need that money from our last Kickstarter campaign to pay for travel again. I honestly can't really imagine traveling for this podcast probably anytime this year. So I'm guessing it'll be at least a year before we're back out on the road. Because so many organizations are in need right now, I have decided to redistribute a third of the remaining money from our last campaign through donations to past 50 feminist states guests and community members. I'm so appreciative to everyone who donated to those campaigns. And I feel like it is the best use of your generous donations to support the organizations that we've interviewed for this podcast. I feel really strongly that I can't just kind of sit on that money and wait until we can travel again when I'm watching some of these organizations really struggle to survive. What's the point of the podcast if the people we're going to interview, their work doesn't make it through this time. So I wanted to share here that I'll be redistributing that money, which is about $500 to some of those organizations at this point, And then I'll reevaluate at the end of the season if that seems like it needs to happen again. I would also like you, if you're listening and you are in a stable financial position, which I know may not be very many of you, but if that is you, I have compiled a blog post on the 50 Feminist States website that includes donation links to the individuals and organizations from past episodes who could use our support right now. So if you are in a position to support others, I would encourage you to head to 50feministstates.com slash podcast slash redistribute, and you will find a list of over a dozen organizations that I think could really, really use our support right now. These will be the same organizations that I'm donating to as I redistribute some of the Kickstarter campaign funds over the course of the next few weeks. Redistributing that money, I just want to be clear, does not mean that this podcast is ending or going away. I feel very confident that when travel is safe again, there will be plenty of you listening to support 50 Feminist States going back on the road and continuing the 50 state journey. 
I also wanted to take this time to kind of shift perhaps the fundraising model that we've been going through. So if you are one of those people who's in a position to support, I would like to invite you to contribute a $5 monthly donation to the podcast in an ongoing way that will help slowly kind of refill the coffers that we're redistributing right now, right? So instead of doing a Kickstarter campaign, which is one big burst of energy asking for a one-time donation, I'm taking this as an opportunity to try to put in place some smaller ongoing support from listeners who are in stable financial positions. So if that's you, uh, we have a new glow.fm page where you can pledge that contribution. So if you go to the show notes, you can click right through to it and support the podcast in that way. If you're listening right now and your financial position is incredibly precarious and it is really uncomfortable for you to even hear someone talking about giving away money or asking for money, I just want to say that I see you and I hear you. And if there's anything that 50 Feminist States can do to support you, please do not hesitate to show up in our DMs or in my inbox, amelia at 50feministstates.com and let me know what we can do to help. All I want for this podcast is for it to serve the community that we interview and that listens to it. So again, if you can support the podcast or the organizations that we support, please head to 50feministstates.com slash podcast slash redistribute, and you'll find some information about places that money can go. If you're not in a position for that right now, I am sending you tons of love. Feel free to reach out on Instagram or an email with anything that you might need. So all of that said, let's get into this episode. I am so excited. This is one of the sharpest, most important conversations I think that we've had on the podcast so far. In today's interview with Allegra Love, the director of Santa Fe Dreamers Project. So Allegra is an attorney. She taught in public school for four years before going to law school and founding this organization. You'll hear in the episode that her decision to go to law school really came from seeing firsthand the atrocities that immigrants and migrants face in the U.S. legal system. And so she really wanted to support her community and she felt the best way she could do that was to educate herself and become a lawyer that could be their advocate inside of the system that you'll hear her talk about how depraved and demoralizing and dehumanizing it is. Throughout the episode, we'll hear about Allegra's journey to founding Santa Fe Dreamers Project, the many, many, many initiatives that the organization has going on at any given time. We'll have a special feature on their work with trans women in detention centers in New Mexico. So if you want to learn more about that or understand why it should make you and all of us so angry and frustrated that this is happening, that's about halfway through the episode. Make sure you stay tuned for it. And at the end, we talk about the ways that COVID-19 is impacting her work. I talked to Allegra about three days after I canceled the podcast road trip. So this is right at the beginning of the U.S. responding to coronavirus as a crisis, right at the beginning of shutdowns. The conditions for so many people in detention centers have only gotten worse during this time. And so when you listen to Allegra talk about what's needed, keep in mind that it hasn't gotten any better in the number of weeks since we spoke. I also want to say up front that one of, I think, the most important things she talks about at the very end of the episode is how when she goes into communities to talk to people about her work, compassionate people, well-meaning people, it frustrates her so much that the first thing she has to do is convince them that immigrants are worthy of their care. She has to fight for their humanity. And she says this so elegantly and powerfully, and I want you to listen until the very end so you don't miss it. But I think that message also has to come here right up front. When we're talking about immigration in the U.S., 
our whole narrative around it is so dehumanizing. And the very least that all of us can do is to resist that dehumanization, is to insist on seeing immigrants as people that we care for, that are members of our communities, that we want to see, embody, and enjoy their full-lived potential. So that said, let's get right into this episode. Here's Allegra. So my name is Allegra Love. I am an immigration attorney and the executive director of Santa Fe Dreamers Project. I actually started Santa Fe Dreamers Project around five years ago after being a public school teacher and then going to law school and then working again in the public schools. Santa Fe Dreamers Project's mission is to provide legal services to immigrants and refugees all over New Mexico and West Texas. People who live in our communities, people who are detained in our communities. And the idea is that we believe legal services can help support economic and community development, educational attainment, and then, of course, family unity and liberation from detention. And so we're just like sort of constantly designing programs and legal services to support that mission in like the ever-shifting environment that refugees and immigrants live in in our community. So what would you say then are some of your like core programming right now? Or maybe how did it start and what, how has it evolved since the beginning? I mean, the whole journey for me started out 15 years ago when I was mm-hmm. a public school teacher at Santa Fe Public Schools. I was pretty young and new to the community. And I was working in a school that just mainly filled with Mexican immigrant families. Some of the kids were immigrants themselves. Some of the kids were first generation. And I just loved that school and I loved the people. And, you know, I was the outsider, Mm -hmm. you know, even though I'm a non-immigrant, I'm a citizen of the U.S. I was born here. I was being welcomed into this really incredible community and learning so much about that culture, like American immigrant culture, about Mexican culture, about Mexican-American culture. And then there was an ICE raid. This was right when ICE was invented in the early days. And it was one of Santa Fe's first times where like ICE came into our community to hunt down people in our streets. And it was really, really terrifying. And the kids were all staying home. The parents were all like, what are our rights? And I just felt really helpless because I didn't have any understanding of people's rights. I mean, a lot of people feel this way right now during the Trump administration. I just was having this feeling during the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I decided that I wanted to just like learn about it and study it and went to work for No Mas Muertes on the southern border, No More Deaths. I mean, Mm -hmm. by work, I mean volunteer to go learn more about what was going on with migration to the United States And what I discovered there was just so frightening and depressing and upsetting. The Mm. things that I learned about American immigration policy were so demoralizing that I decided to go to law school so I could become a lawyer and support my community in managing their interactions with this completely awful and degrading system of American immigration. So that's what caused me to go to law school. And then I came back and started working for the public schools. And it was right around when DACA came out, I was working for an agency with the public schools and an agency that supported unhoused folks, families who used the public school and also didn't have 
homes. And I was starting to notice like, wow, a lot of the people we served are also undocumented. I mean, it makes sense, right? They don't have access to the same economic tools that mm -hmm. we do. They're going to have more housing instability. And so, you know, I was a lawyer and I started a project at that agency inside the schools to be like, if I can help folks pull in a little bit from the margins, right? And I can help them get work permits, residency, help keep them safe from immigration. Could we start to see a long-term change in their housing outcomes, right? Like, will we stop seeing so many undocumented people? That was the original like thesis that I had in my head. And it was right around the time that President Obama signed the executive order for DACA. Mm -hmm. And so the project really just became like, just walk the halls of the public schools and try to meet as many kids as I possibly can who qualify for this program and help them get their papers mm -hmm. and hope that in providing them with that tool, we see, first of all, I believe it should be free, right? So they don't have to spend $500 and then pay a lawyer another $2,000 to do this, mm -hmm. that they can just have access to this tool in the most cost-effective way and a way that they feel safe. And then see, does this help them become more economically capable, more like, you, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that was just the original thing that we were doing, which is why the program is called Santa Fe's Dreamers Project. And in 2015, I left that agency and started my own nonprofit. And it really was just to run these legal clinics to help out people who qualify for DACA in our community. In 2015, like we started a slow expansion then, and I started to expand our services to reach people who qualify for U visas. Those are folks who are a victim of violence mm -hmm. and try to do community-based programs connecting with the agencies that generally assist people. So originally, like that was it. Like we were just trying to provide community-based legal services to help be part of like a continuum of services immigrant families could use to get the tools they need to like participate, to make their families healthier, to get degrees, to open businesses. That was our whole idea in 2015. And then of course, in 2016, President Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the way I can describe it in 2015 and 2016 was our programs that stood behind our immigrant clients to try and uplift them, to try and help provide some support so that they could reach the things that they needed. And suddenly in 2016, it became us standing between the government and our clients and like mm -hmm. shielding them. And that was like a huge, like sort of paradigm shift in our programming that we still haven't recovered from. I mean, you know, Trump is still president and every week the assault on our immigrant communities gets more intense and more depraved. So once that happened, you know, we still have a branch of our nonprofit that does our, what we call our community programming, mm -hmm. helping people get green cards, DACA, citizenship and naturalization, helping folks who are victims of violence get U visas. We're still doing all of that. And that's mm -hmm. actually like our most highest volumes of clients are still coming through those programs. But we have a whole other part of our 
half of our organization that is helping with making sure people stay out of detention, making sure people's families are together, making sure asylum seekers are treated humanely as they work their way through the system, defending people in asylum court, helping them stay in the United States, helping them not get deported to places where they might get killed. And one thing that happened in 2017 was the government opened a transgender pod uh, the transgender pod in Cibola County, New Mexico, mm-hmm. which is where they housed the majority of transgender detainees in the United States. And we became deeply involved in the liberation movement for transgender women from ICE detention and supporting transgender women as they came through Mexico and up into our system. And then now out of the custody of the Department of Homeland Security and into communities where they're pursuing asylum without being detained. It's become an enormous passion and focus of our organization over the last several years. So that's sort of where we're at right now. Yeah. Which is a lot of places. It sounds a really long answer to your question. No, no, I appreciate it. That was great. I'm, I've been really reading more about kind of the work you've been doing with transgender women in Cibola County. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit when you say deeply involved, what does that entail? It depends on any given day or any given month. The thing that we have always done is visited women in detention and strategized on how to get them released from detention, whether that's with parole, whether that's through bond or whether that's through winning their individual asylum case and getting them released that way. That was our original focus and intention. In Cibola County recently, they transferred all the detainees, but we did that in Cibola County for around two and a half years. We are supporting women in Aurora, Colorado. We are supporting trans populations, Tacoma, Washington. We are helping Raices. We support women in Pearsall, Texas, which is South Texas, and one of the scariest places that we support detained women right now is Wynn County, Louisiana, or Wynn County Correctional Center, where there's this like hidden population of transgender women who are in some of the scariest conditions that we've ever seen. Mm. So we focus on helping make sure that they have the legal support they need to get out as quickly as possible. Trans detention can be deadly. We've had two really high profile deaths of trans women in detention in the last couple of years, Roxana Hernandez and Joanna Medina. And um, they're both in New Mexico. And so we take very seriously the fact that detention could potentially be really, really life-threatening. It can be emotionally threatening and traumatic. Women are at high risk for sexual assault, for being put in... um, solitary confinement and also for just having like really, really negligent, almost criminally negligent medical care. Mm-hmm. So but then we started to learn, like, if we want to do really, really well in the detention spaces, we have to understand what's happening before detention and after detention. Mm-hmm. And so what we started to do in 2018 was organize and meet women before they come to the U.S., Because one of the things that makes getting a woman out of detention so difficult is she needs a sponsor. And if the first time we're meeting someone is day one in detention, we have lost an opportunity. Then it takes a while to find a sponsor for her. And our theory was like, well, what if we know who these women are before they come into U.S. detention? right? What if we meet them? What if we talk to them? What if we do an intake on them? What if we already understand their asylum claim? What if we already understand their needs around 
a sponsor. And so in 2018, we sent staff onto the caravan to meet up with the trans women on the caravan and provide legal services as they moved across Mexico. And so we have one attorney who's still working in New Mexico in Juarez, and we have another staff member who's working in Tijuana. So we're not like moving in migration routes anymore, but what we are doing is having folks post up in coalition with other organizations in Juarez and Tijuana to make sure that we have an understanding of like who is coming across the border mm-hmm. and helping to figure out what's going on. We do that with the Transgender Law Center, with the National Immigrant Justice Center, with um, trans organizing groups like Trans Latina Coalition, with Familia, and we're trying to work in coalition to make sure they support. The other thing that we have to do also though is make sure that they're supported on the back end when people are released from detention. They're often released with their asylum case still pending and they need help being placed in a community where they have a safe place to live, where they can find a lawyer, where they can help transition into life in the United States, you know, learn how to live in our country. And a lot of people need economic support while they figure out how to find work and get their work permits. And so we have staff who's only job is to help coordinate and organize around what happens after that release and doing deep organizing work in communities across the United States to try and train people to be sponsors and sort of work with communities to create welcoming spaces for people released from trans attention. It's an enormous project. Yeah, (laughs) that is an enormous project. You know, you're just doing immediate support and changing the entire culture. (laughs) That's all. I mean, I have to give my staff like an an incredible amount of credit. That project alone would be enough for one nonprofit. But we also have people developing Mm -hmm. an incredible collaborative of lawyers doing border detention work, coordinating remote lawyers from all over the U.S. to support detainees in the West Texas border. We have our groups where we run three community legal clinics a week for folks in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. We do rural clinics. Like Our staff is amazing. Mm-hmm. And the things that they have done is they've just been completely nimble and responsive and our actions are all over the place. We're doing things this year that I didn't, were not in our strategic plan because our staff is really certain of our values and what we are trying to bring to this community of immigrants and refugees. And so it's less about saying like, this is what we do. And it's more saying, this is what we want. And we have to constantly adapt our actions and our strategies to continue to push on this concept of liberation, this concept of empowerment of immigrant communities. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. It sounds like your team has a real agility and ability to kind of the values are clear. So you follow the work wherever it's needed. Yes, they're amazing. Yeah. So speaking to that kind of shifting gears a lot and rapidly that Santa Fe Dreamers Project does, when we hopped on the call, you said that two weeks ago, you didn't think your work could get harder and then it has. Can you share some of what what's happening right now? What's happening now, like it's March 18th and we are probably now a week into our country's awareness that this pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic is going to ravage our country. Mm -hmm. So we are in the midst of a fast moving public health crisis. And, you know, there are 
you know, an estimate of around 40,000 people detained by ICE in the United States right now who, you know, I know that people who listen to this, I don't know when you're going to air it, but they hopefully will be able to connect with the feeling we all of us around the country have today on March 18th, which is fear and anxiety and the fact that there's no clarity around how we should act and what we should be doing. And we're worried about our bodies. We're worried about our loved ones' bodies. And I think that like one really, really clear through line in all of this is that we need to keep a safe distance from one another and socially distance and socially isolate and quarantine ourselves. I think that's very clear from public health experts. And so I just want people to like remember this pain, this anxiety, this worry and fear. And now imagine that you are a person in an ICE detention facility who has all those same fear, anxieties, worries, concerns, yet you have no freedom of movement of your body to do the one thing that we know can keep you safe, which is isolate, stay away from people in quarantine. People are shoulder to shoulder in these attention facilities. These places are notorious for lack of sanitation, lack of appropriate medical care. And there's no curve to flatten when this virus gets into the facilities. And it is. It's Mm -hmm. already there. And so what folks on the outside have to realize is that these people live in our communities. It doesn't matter that they're caged. I mean, you ever seen Game of Thrones with the wildfire, that green stuff that Mm -hmm. just tears through? This isn't a curve. This is a wildfire that's going to go through. And these people will take resources from our community response the same exact way that people on the outside will. They have to be part of this curve flattening the same way we all are. And what's so fucking disappointing about the way ICE is responding right now is we are watching agencies, local, federal, state agencies, non-governmental communities, are like familial communities. We're watching people take extreme and extraordinary measures to be part of this like collective and community response to protect our healthcare system from collapse. And ICE cannot do it. ICE cannot cooperate in a non-political way. Like we should be coming together for a public health crisis and strategizing about how to release as many possible people from these conditions. Yet ICE is Mm. still on the streets picking people up, arresting them and putting them into detention. They are actively denying our requests for humanitarian parole for people who are immunosuppressed. It's mind boggling that what I mean is, is like when I said that I couldn't imagine it could get harder, my job is constantly trying to protect our clients from this extreme moral depravity of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. And I thought we were at rock bottom and apparently we're not because even when there is a pandemic that is threatening every single person in our country equally, they still manage to treat these folks as if they are disposable people who don't deserve the same level of humanity as other people in our country. It's, 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 it's just, you ever get the feeling like you don't know if your heart can break any harder. And then, I mean, my heart's broken and then Mm. it's been broken and it breaks every day a little harder. And like, this is just breaking it. Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. It's devastating. 
And if I, like every single conversation I've had the last four or five years, you know, because my career in detention started under the Obama administration mm-hmm. when he, in New Mexico, he reopened the first family detention facility in Artesia, New Mexico. That's where I personally got involved in this fight to end detention and to make asylum safer and to protect families and individuals on the southern border. Like, that's where I entered. It was 2014. It's been seven years. Mm-hmm. And the fucked up thing for me is that whenever I have to educate the public about this, I always have to start with this explanation of the humanity of the people that I work with. Like, I have to mm-hmm. remind people in my community, people who have come to hear me talk, people who have asked for my expertise, I have to spend 10 minutes explaining to them that these people are humans, that they are rational, that they love and grieve the same way that they do, that they're not criminals, that they've done nothing criminal, because the premise that these people aren't worth a damn is something that I have to overcome in every single conversation that we have about policy or any explanation of what I do for a living, because people around our country are so convinced that these folks have something to atone and apologize for, and that they carry around some moral lapse because they have needed to migrate. And one of the things I'm hoping that this current crisis can educate people in the United States about is that the shit hits the fan. You're willing to do anything for your family. This is exactly what everyone on our Southern border has done. Yeah. I'm sorry. I get so worked up. No, I appreciate you saying that. I think people need to hear it. And I, not being in your position, can only imagine how hard it is. So much of the organizing work that I do and when I talk to people about can always start from a level of shared humanity among people. And what you're saying is like, you always have to even fight for that, that common ground to even get people to care. And that sounds. But I'm talking about normal, regular, I say normal. I'm talking about compassionate people. Yeah. We still, and part of me, like where I'm like most compassionate, like at my core in trying to understand folks and why they continue to allow this to happen in plain sight in our communities is part of what I I think about myself Mm -hmm. and all the incredibly disgusting and painful things that I've seen happen at the hands of our government. And it's almost like to make that understandable to me, to make that work in the way I see the world, I almost have to believe that these people have done something wrong. Because if they haven't, then what in the living fuck are we doing? It's genocide. It's Holocaust shit. It's stuff that we said we would never do to other people and we're doing it. And the easier, the path of less resistance is to allow yourself to believe that they've done something to deserve it because it makes us less monstrous. But it's not true. You know what I'm saying? And we have to wake up to the fact that, like, we don't want this to be a part of our history. Yeah. I mean, the U.S., at least in my opinion, refuses to acknowledge many genocides in our own history. And opening our eyes to that is is always really, in some ways, obvious and also very painful, depending on how you're doing that work. I appreciate everything that you've shared. I know it's an incredibly busy and even harder than ever time for you. I guess the last question I would ask is, is how can people listening support Santa Fe Dream Project? You can start by going to our website. There's a lot of information about how to support and how to get involved right there. 
the other thing is, I mean, we always need donations, obviously. You know, I'm not right at this moment at total economic distress in our country. That's probably not something I am just going to like totally hammer people on, mm-hmm. although we always need donations. One thing I really suggest is at our website, we have a newsletter you can sign up for. It's just easy. You click and sign up and you get added to our email list. I promise you this is not to get spammed. I spend a lot of time sharing what I get to know and get to see as someone who's an expert who has access on all these issues with our community and almost a monthly basis, as long as things aren't too crazy, making sure that people have an up-to-date idea of what's happening in the news, an up-to-date analysis of what's going on locally, statewide, regionally, federally, nationally, in other countries, and then also making sure people understand where they can plug in month to month to month. It's probably the best possible way to stay in touch. I'm really proud of our newsletters. I'm going to actually write one this afternoon. Okay, wonderful. I'll link to that in the show notes so everybody can subscribe, and I will get myself on that list immediately. Oh, yeah. And just, I hope everyone who listens to your podcast is doing fine. And I guess one thing I would like to share at this time of distress and crisis is that I have like the enormous privilege of getting to work with people, refugees, people who have fled horrible crises. And I can tell you that I've witnessed normal people show the most extraordinary strength. And I've seen incredible people who are facing the scariest and saddest things just still have joy and fall in love and get in fights with their kids. And, you know, they care about their cell phones. They look beautiful. Life is going on even in crises. And I get to see that strength every day. And I'm not sure a lot of Americans do. I think if we look hard for it, we will. Mm-hmm. It's all over mm-hmm. the strength in crisis with completely regular people. And I just want to remind people that like, this is possible for all of us too. And I get to see examples of incredible people doing this. And so I know that there are people around me who can endure and survive and overcome with joy and love and through grief. And I just take it from someone who sees this every day as part of their job. Thank you. That's really nice. I appreciate you sharing that with all of us. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope that, I don't even know what to say about your day. I hope that it runs as smoothly as it can. (laughs) I'm going to (laughs) try. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.